0: Is the Joe Biden White House right to tackle so-called misinformation, or is this a fascistic censorship regime? That's the debate on today's Vince and Jason Save the Nation.
1: Hey, welcome back, guys. We are on Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Jason Nichols. That is my good friend, Vince Colonese, and we have a lot to discuss today. Vince, what do we have for today?
0: Uh, Jason, I want to get your reaction to what the limits should be on the White House uh, and, and, the, and the sort of democratic world uh, around Joe Biden in terms of going after what they refer to as misinformation. The government is taking perhaps the most active effort we've ever seen in uh, trying to govern the way information is disseminated around the country, specifically in this case, when it comes to coronavirus, the White House is alleging that there's just too much misinformation. That's the word they keep using uh, about the vaccine that's getting out there, and as a result, they're pressuring social media companies to censor uh, anything that disagrees with government sources on um, on the vaccines and and so many other issues. And I'm really nervous about this because I think this is a pretty brazen attempt to censor uh, meaningful conversations in the American public, and we should aggressively push back on it. I, I'll give you some base, some baseline examples, I think, in the last week that um, have disturbed me. One of them is the White House says it is maintaining a list of Facebook accounts that it claims are spreading the majority of misinformation. It's obviously pressuring Facebook, the company, uh, to ban those accounts or to censor the information that's being sent around. Uh, additionally, Joe Biden on Friday said that Facebook itself is quote, killing people, Uh, after Facebook reacted with fury about that over the weekend, President Biden rolled that back earlier this week uh, and suggested that people shouldn't get hung up on that description. And he's saying that the people who are using Facebook are the ones who are killing people. And then early last week, we saw a report out of Politico that the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, is urging uh, telecommunications companies to police the content of text messages, SMS messages uh, when it comes to uh, so-called misinformation in order to see if they can get people sent, you know, fact checks and all sorts of things contingent on the types of things that they're receiving in text messages. I think that these are perilous overreaches on the part of the government, uh, especially trying to compel these private companies to behave in such a way that um, that they police speech And that regardless of where you fall politically, you should get nervous when the government says that it's going to start dictating what's true and what's not.
1: So, uh, first of all, I think I want to clarify Joe Biden's rollback. Um, He said, and this is a quote, Facebook isn't killing people. These 12 people are out there giving misinformation. Anyone listening to it is getting hurt by it. It's killing people. It's bad information. So the only reason I bring that up is because you said that the people using Facebook are killing people. I wanted to make clear that he didn't say that your average user who may even share some of this bad information is, uh, is killing people. He's saying that the purveyors, the, the people, uh, there's a report out of uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Uh, that said that there are about a dozen super spreaders of anti-vaccine misinformation. Um, So he was referring to those 12 people and referring to that report, not to somebody who falls victim to those uh, claims and then spreads it. Uh, It's the the originator of it that he was talking about. Um, I definitely think that there is an argument in terms of an overreach when it comes to so-called, well, misinformation and disinformation. And we we had talked a little bit about, you know, misinformation versus disinformation. Um, I think a lot of what they're referring to is not misinformation, it's actually disinformation. But either way, um, I think putting some pressure upon private companies to make sure that people, um don't and and private companies foreign entities all these kinds of things people who disrupt what we're doing here in the United States there are public health officials who say we're going to have to start wearing masks again uh even vaccinated people because in part there's so much mis and disinformation out there so putting some pressure that's i think what governments do Uh, Sometimes is when they think that someone's doing something wrong, they're not necessarily punishing them, but they're telling them, look, you know, can you get a handle on this? Um, And there are many different options for how to get a handle on that. And if these companies think that they are um, not going to, to uh, to do this kind of work, then sometimes you have to, you know, start applying a little bit of pressure. I think this is a public health concern. We saw so many people lose their jobs. Um, you know, so many people struggle, kids at home, uh, parents not able to, to work because they're trying to monitor their kids' virtual school, all these kinds of things, damage to our economy that we're still recovering from. And we don't want to go backwards. And so I understand that the government is trying to say look, the big challenge right now as we're seeing the variants pop up, is the misinformation out there. And there are lots of people out there who are vulnerable and susceptible to misinformation. We want these companies to rein it in. And I also think it's also interesting that conservatives uh, or, I don't know, I mean, I think there are traditional conservatives out there. And and now I think with, since 2015, 16, there are people in the republican party who aren't necessarily conservative but that's a different conversation um but republicans and and some conservatives uh who want to target section 230 but just for different reasons um so it sounds to me like it's kind of bipartisan just for different reasons right we uh go after these social media companies unfortunately the conservative reasons uh, are unfounded. We don't, you know, there's really no evidence of shadow banning and a lot of the things that and biased against conservatives. That's just a feeling, but it's not backed up by facts. And um, okay. researchers at NYU actually did a study on that, and I and I can cite that if you'd like. But what we do know is that misinformation is causing vaccine hesitancy. And vaccine hesitancy is causing more people to be susceptible to these new variants of COVID. And that's leading to more hospitalizations, uh, more deaths. And we have to be concerned about that. And so we're trying to battle this and their public health in this day and age uh, is on many fronts. And a lot of it is on the information front. And I think that uh, the motivation of the government is a good one, how they're going about it that's where the discussion lies um how do you challenge facebook and other uh entities to uh basically challenge this misinformation and differma- disinformation that's out there
0: well i i hate to tell you but i i know for a fact that it is the the bias against conservatives and especially conservative media is fact based it's not a feeling no um there's been there's been Uh, a bunch of uh, evidence. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, One a couple of years ago uh, became a big report in, I believe it was Gizmodo reporting on the extent to which Facebook was manipulating trending topics in order to suppress conservative news stories arriving uh, in its feed. Uh, And that that was reported from inside of Facebook and Gizmodo was able to uh, get that report out there. Additionally, in May of 2020, um, you had Google shut off traffic. They They took away traffic from all of the conservative news sites uh, so that during in the midst of the election, that if you were to search news topics, your chances of hitting an article from Breitbart, from The Daily Caller, from The Blaze, pick your conservative news site um, diminished entirely unless you added the words Daily Caller, Breitbart, Blaze to your search topic. It used to be that if you would search something like Joe Biden, your chances of finding an article from a website like that. Were very high. That changed in about May of 2020. Google began suppressing all of those websites, um, and that's not a, that's not an accident. that That happened on purpose. That's real, um, and and it's and it's crystal clear evidence of an attempt to elevate corporate news outlets over uh, conservative or alternative media outlets. Um, and one of the most obvious examples, I think, of big tech meddling was the Hunter Biden story at the very end of the last election, when you had the New York Post, America's oldest newspaper, run a story on the basis of genuine information that was on a laptop left in Delaware uh, by a man who signed Hunter Biden's name. And the information on that laptop contained concerning uh, details about the relationship that Joe Biden uh, may have had vis a vis his son to a variety of foreign countries and the financial entanglements involved. Now, that's a story worthy of more exploration. But as it came out in the waning weeks of the election, what did the big tech companies do? Well, they suppressed it. Facebook, Twitter, they made sure that that story couldn't be shared, or if it was, they suppressed its reach in, in the case of Facebook. And they said so explicitly. Um, they conjured up explanations for that. Uh, Twitter said it was hacked material. It was nothing of the sort. It was material that was on a laptop, a hard drive that was available to the New York Post, and they reported it out. So um, I would say that there is abundant evidence of big tech bias against uh, conservatives and certainly the types of issues that conservatives are interested in. But on this issue of um, what the White House is up to, I think that they are engaged in some some pretty dramatic overreach here. First of all, I don't think the government should be the place to which we turn to find out what's true and what's false. Uh, Obviously, I want transparency out of the government. I argue for that routinely, including right here on our program. Uh, And I want them to tell us the truth, but I don't think that they should be in the business of dictating to our society what's true, what's false, what's in bounds, what's out of bounds for conversation. And in fact, I'm joined this morning by the ACLU. They just tweeted it out last night on this subject. Quote, no matter which party is in power, the government cannot be trusted to label truth or fiction any more than Facebook or Twitter can. And the ACLU runs down a bunch of examples where presidents in the past have expressed things that they say were not true. For instance, uh, the ACLU says, remember when then-President Trump claimed COVID would just, quote, go away without a vaccine? Remember when President Nixon claimed the White House wasn't involved in the Watergate burglary? Remember when President George W. Bush told us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? Remember when the government told us that cannabis is as dangerous as heroin and PCP? Remember when President Obama told us that the NSA has not abused surveillance programs that were revealed by Edward Snowden. That's the ACLU coming out and saying, we are going down a really dangerous road here and we need to hit the brakes uh, because the government shouldn't be doing this.
1: So I, I, I just want to go back to what you said about, you know, Google engineering the search engine to help Joe Biden yeah. uh, win a presidential election. And actually the, the research out of um, NYU, NYU. Mm-hmm. you know, um, the NYU Stern Center for Business and Human Rights um, actually addresses that and says the allegation is based on a study whose methods were highly questionable. And I think a lot of these, again, you can get a study that'll, that'll say anything from, you know, some think tank or or, you know, some, you know, third-rate university, not NYU, uh, not a team of researchers from NYU. And they came into it, they looked at it, they said, and again, methods are incredibly important. Anyone in academia will tell you, you can get a study to say anything you want if you use questionable methods. Um, And that's one of the things we saw actually in in the COVID research that was popping out and that was saying all these different things about different drugs and, and things like that. Uh, A lot of it was rushed or poor research, but these researchers actually looked at it. And if anything, what they found was that social media actually helped, for example, the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Yes, that was that was largely social media. The other thing is that content moderation uh, decisions come from contractors largely outside of the United States and executives that want to placate the right and not antagonize them. So this idea that there's the boogeyman out there that's trying to, to silence conservatives, they want users, they want clicks, and conservatives are 45% of America. Uh, there's there's no, there, it is true that some of the employees within a lot of these companies are young, left-leaning uh, techies, but the people who make those kinds of decisions are not those people. And I think that that, you know, you can come up with, um, you know, individual cases and anecdotes, uh, of course, that, you know, will we'll paint a certain picture and make people feel victimized. But in reality, that's just not the case. Um, and, and the NYU study is the most recent that I'm citing, but other studies have cited this earlier that, you know, looked at, is there a bias against conservatives? And, you know, that's just not really what's happening now as far as what you're saying in in terms of the overreach um by government i think the aclu is is making a strong point and that's why you know you know it's questionable about how we do this i and i'm worried about a lot of things you know the banning of a lot of content the banning of the 1619 project the banning of you know, so-called critical race theory, all, right. all these kinds of things. And I don't want to get into a discussion about that. But, you know, when you start banning things, that's when we get close to burning books. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a scary thought, in my opinion. So it, there, I think we have some, we're somewhat on the same side there, that when you start banning information, um, I get it. I get the concern. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think that these are extraordinary circumstances. Um, this is not in under normal circumstances, and and I understand the mistrust for government. Of, of course, Nixon lied. You know what I mean? Trump lied several times. Obama lied. Uh and Bush certainly lied. Um, we we have, you know, and they left out Clinton, but I'm pretty sure he told a few lies in his career. Um, so there, there are lots of, and Reagan who may have told the biggest lie, you know what I mean? Like they left Iran Contra out of that, which I think again, biggest presidential scandal of my lifetime, uh, far worse than anything Trump got impeached for. I mean, Bill Clinton got impeached for something that I don't even think was that big a deal. And then, you know, you have in an, when you compare it to many other things he did. Um, And, you know, you have our other presidents uh, of my lifetime, and that kind of gets left off the list. But either way, um, I think that still these circumstances with COVID are like nothing we've seen in the last century or more. I'm not even sure Spanish flu because they didn't, you know, they didn't know what was going on at that time. I'm not even sure that was uh, the same as COVID um, in this day and age. And so I think we, the concern over public health, when we've lost 600,000 people over the last 18 months um, and we risk lots of public health officials out there saying Mm -hmm. this could get bad again and they're learning more. I will agree with a lot of conservatives and with you that in the early days sometimes because there was so much information out there um and everybody was rushing to get stuff out there. Right. Um a lot of the information was conflicting. Nobody knew what to do. Um and you know, you had to get information out there in 2 weeks rather than in 2 months or rather yeah. than in 2 years. Um and re- you know, publishing scientific papers is something that usually is a relatively quick process you know in comparison to social science you know it's a long process to publish a paper for me like if i were to publish um a paper in uh you know a peer-reviewed journal it could take like nine months from submission to publication science journals are quicker than that but I think this time because they were trying to get information out there so quickly that it was even being cut shorter. Right. And you had all this information, but now 18 months later, people actually do have more solid information on this. And they're competing with uh you know, some some guy's little website that he created um and he learned how to beat the algorithm and he's getting his information spread out there um, because people don't trust the government and don't trust uh, real sources. And we have to be uh, very cognizant of that. And I think that public health right now needs truth. And sometimes cha- challenging lies with truth doesn't, oh, isn't as effective as it could be. And I think social media sometimes, you know, they, they need to get some kind of pressure that says, look, you guys deal with this because this is your platform. Um, We can't make it illegal to make a website. We can't make it illegal to have an article, Um, but we can make it so that your platform doesn't have to share it and super spread it around and spread bad information. That's going to get people sick. But this is, this is
0: where it kind of gets down to the core of the argument though. It's like who decides what's true and what's not. And so right now the government is exert using its power to, to make those decisions. Uh, But we've seen um, a lot of recklessness with this censorship over the last year, especially Uh, you and I have discussed a couple of examples. One of them is, of course, the origins of coronavirus used to be forbidden to talk about the lab leak out of Wuhan uh, now because the government has begun to change its attitudes. Uh, specifically under the Biden administration, because the Trump administration was open to this. The Biden administration, when it became open to it, that turned that was the green light for Facebook to say, "Okay, now our users are allowed to talk about this." That is just a horrific uh, abuse of of the commons of the ability for people to have real conversations uh, that took place over the course of the last year on medicine. Uh, remember that you know that you had people who in with in positions of authority who said that we couldn't discuss hydroxychloroquine last year. Remember when it was, that was a subject of hot debate. There've been conflicting studies. You've noted them here on our program. Uh, A lot of studies that came out, look, it showed no benefit. Some people showed negative consequences. Others apparently has showed some positive consequences. In other words, the verdict remains out on that. We're seeing a similar debate playing out with a drug called ivermectin right now, a long-term drug that's existed, uh, which uh, you've seen the big tech companies suppress conversations around it. And these are not you know, crazy people having conversations. These are sober scientists who are talking about these things uh, in social media environments. Dr. Brett Weinstein is one of the guys who's been subjected to bans for having conversations about that drug. Um, it's just that what's, what's happened is our, the, the companies who control conversation, not just in the United States, but around the planet, And the governments who pressure those companies, now to include the United States government, have so constricted the terms and the bounds of debate that they're foreclosing on our ability to come to the truth. And it's a deeply patronizing uh, thing that animates all of this. It's the belief that the American public is too dumb to process information without it being run through what they consider authoritative sources. And I would say that's an anti-American impulse to treat the public that way. Uh, and, and I'll say this lastly on this subject, um, the more information you suppress, the more you make something forbidden to talk about, the more you will radicalize people uh, in terms of making them think that um, that those conversations are being made forbidden in order to prevent them from knowing about them. There, there's a there's a negative impact to censorship, which is to radicalize some segment of the population. Don't do that. Don't make it so they have to crowd into the darkest spaces of the internet in order to have conversations. Have these conversations where there's plenty of sunlight, where people can respond to them, where people can engage in real debates. uh, And let's have some allowance for people being wrong. That's okay.
1: Well, again, I I think that you are absolutely correct under normal circumstances. Um, I think, you know, I'm I'm a big advocate of um, the First Amendment and and the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's one of the beautiful things. There's a reason why it's first. And I think it's um, one of the things that makes our country uh, so incredible Amen. when it's adhered to, which it's not always. But in this case, uh, first of all, the government has not outlawed, you know, this is not stopping your free speech. The government has not outlawed uh making your you know your website conservativebackyard.com and spreading out mis- misinformation that's not against the law and no one is making it that even to be one of those 12 super spreaders of misinformation the government is not outlawing that you know what i mean i can understand where you may say this is a slippery slope maybe it's going to lead to that but that's not what the government at least my understanding of this is not saying Government is not even uh, necessarily addressing them. It's saying, look, this is the platform through which they spread this misinformation. They are not necessarily entitled to your platform. You know, and we, as the government, are the people who have to regulate your platform. You know, we we can play nice or we can regulate you more. We think you should do the responsible thing. That's not necessarily saying that, you know, an infringement upon your First Amendment rights. Well, don't don't you think. And I want to go back real quick, real quick. Okay.
0: Okay. sure.
1: Um, The hydroxychloroquine thing, uh, you said the jury is still out. Yes. Um, It has shown some benefits in people who are hospitalized and very sick is, you know, some research I've seen. There is research, you know, that counters that. But some research I've seen has said that. But the thing that was being spread through, uh, you know, arguably the most influential and famous man, arguably on the planet right now, um, is the idea that you would take it as prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. And that was the problematic thing. I've never seen a study that says that. And he claimed he was taking it and then he got COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you want to take an anecdote, he's the perfect antidote for why that was bad and misinformation, you know. So, again, you know, people thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll just hop this pill, which does have side effects. It's generally a safe drug. I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that most of us won't get, you know, um, won't if you take hydroxychloroquine, you're not going to get the heart um, side effect. You know, that's a rare side effect. Um, so it is relatively safe. But to take it as prophylaxis is an unnecessary risk when there was no evidence to say that it worked that way. And there's still no evidence to say that it works that way.
0: But at the time so that that was the issue at the time that that was being debated, there was um, some. Um, anecdotal evidence. I think there was a doctor out of France who had a study that was on the subject that indicated that it may have been an effect of prophylaxis, but the point it was being investigated. And the threshold to all of this is your doctor has to prescribe it to you. So the way it was being treated by people who were upset that Donald Trump was talking about it was, oh my gosh, people are going to start going out and taking this untested drug and they're going to hurt themselves. No, no, wait a second. There's a literal expert in between you and taking such a drug. It would be your doctor writing a prescription in an off-label capacity. And it was just, we get we get so stupid in these debates. In fact, remember there was that one couple where somebody took fish tank cleaner. It's not even the drug, it's not even hydroxychloroquine. It was, I believe it's just called chloroquine. It's a similar chemical, but they were moronic enough to consume fish tank cleaner. That is not the, that should not be the basis for broad scale speech suppression uh, because somebody was stupid. Um, so I, you know, my so my thought on this is, as I said, is just that we need to be a lot more respectful of people's liberties and uh, and uh, and we need to have like open and robust and free debates and and stop the censorship, because this is, I think, a very dangerous slope.
1: So there, there's a couple of things with, with the hydroxychloroquine. Unfortunately, I, I think we should trust medical professionals. We should trust doctors. Uh, but the doctors who, who weren't listening to the research, uh, who would take, you know, one doctor's word from France, or, you know, uh, who probably did a study on seven people, you know, or, or whatever, you know, that, that wasn't a legitimate, you know, double blind peer reviewed study. Yeah, I think it was an observational said, study. You know, so uh, again, um, you know, if, you, if you're going to do that, and you're going to take his word and and start taking uh, a drug based on that. And if and if this kind of information starts spreading everywhere, when we're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are dying, um, there are a couple of things. And I don't think it's alarmist to say this when we think about how we were locked down and all that, you know, and people were afraid that there could be a black market. That develops for the drug <clears throat> that's what drugs that's what happens with drugs the other thing so you don't necessarily need a um need a prescription when a black market develops or if there's other another thing we know about big pharma and doctors is that you can get prescriptions for drugs and you know not necessarily need them
0: that's we saw true what happened that's with, true
1: uh, You know, all of the painkillers that have caused an opioid crisis throughout our nation. Although there are shady doctors that you can find anywhere, non board certified doctors. I would submit, though, this
0: is what's different about this, though, is this is a cheap generic drug that didn't stand to meaningfully profit any pharmaceutical company. So I think when you just assess that component to it, that adds a little bit of a different spin on it. But you're totally right. Like, for instance, Oxycontin, very good example. mm -hmm. There are doctors who became uh, pill farms. Uh, right. and, and, uh, sure. and boy, was that dangerous. What, a, what an Absolutely. atrocity.
1: And, and the, uh, the other, the last thing I'll add is, um, you know, and I mean, we think of it as kind of funny. I forgot what they called themselves, like the, the lab coat doctors or something. It was, there was something going on and they brought right. out the demon sperm lady. You know what I mean? The one who, you, you remember the demon sperm lady? She
0: Vaguely. I do remember the doctors who had, um, I believe they were in California. They were wearing, was it? But they came they, to D.C. They
1: came to D.C. Oh, okay. They gave a press conference uh, and Breitbart pushed it, you know, and it was, um, there was one lady who, you know, gave this really passionate, angry speech. I've used hydroxychloroquine on 300 patients. It's like, mm-hmm. you don't have 300 patients, you know what I mean? But anyway, <clears throat> um, and you know, no one, I've had no one get sick and everyone gets better and all these kinds of things. Uh, and we know there is a chance, even if she did have 300 patients, which is a lie. Um, but even if she did have 300 patients, excuse me, um. Even if she did have those that number of patients, COVID, um, what is it, one percent? You know, get you know hospitalized or seriously ill. Like right. it, it is very reasonable that she could have had three hundred patients yeah. who got better. Yeah, you know, yeah, just that's got better. You know, that's true. Um, and depending on the age of the patients and all these kinds of things, so- she didn't break this down in a scientific study and publish a paper. She went on a microphone and, you know, Breitbart, which is, you know, hyperviral, not as good as the Daily Caller, uh, hyperviral, you know, puts it out there. And then people say, look, a medical professional in a white lab coat said this about this drug and I needed to keep my family safe.
0: Okay, so and should then that be should that be, could be
1: the one that gets the heart arrhythmia? Go ahead. Do
0: you should that be banished? Do you think? I mean, should a video like that be be banned?
1: No, not not necessarily banned, um, but I do think again, and you and I have talked about this with social media, and this is, I guess, the the traditional conservative I would say in me is that. Uh, and I think libertarians, well, I won't say anything bad about anybody, but, but one thing that I do think that they have somewhat correct in some settings is that, you know, and I gave you this, I think this kind of, uh, analogy before, Mm -hmm. and that is, um, you can put posters up in lots of spaces, but you don't have the right to come into my establishment my hotel my restaurant and put your posters up you know what i mean like i you know i don't have to allow you that platform and that's one of the things that i think conservatives are doing correct or you know the trump folks with getter and parlor and all that is you know we can start our own spaces where we can spread this information um and i mean the government if they start regulating the smaller spaces as well, then I'd be like, then I'm probably going to be on board with you and be like, "All right, overreach." You know what I mean? But with something that is as large and unregulated as yeah. Twitter, as Facebook, and all of that, I think applying a tad bit of pressure um, is important. Actually, and this is why people are talking about breaking these these companies up is right. Think, uh, applying a little bit of pressure here and there to make sure that they do things in the interest of public safety and public health yes. is not always about them.
0: Okay, let me engage with all of these political questions, especially as it relates to what conservatives think of social media, because as you've acknowledged and how you're talking about this, there's a real debate, especially on the right, uh, when it comes to these companies. One way to think about all of this is, you know, you've kind of described it a couple of times, you haven't used the word, but I keep on hearing it in my head that there's a looming threat from the government. In other words, if you don't comply, then we're going to have to bring to bear some regulation uh, on your companies. That's kind of implicit in the government's pressure on these social media companies. Uh, and there's a guy who I've I've mentioned to you before. I'm not sure we've talked about it here on the show, but Vivek Ramaswamy has written an article recently for the Wall Street Journal that kind of addresses this. And the baseline is that once the government starts exerting threatening pressure on companies to act in the way that it wants them to, and those companies then execute the government's wishes, uh, that is. The government trampling on your first amendment rights that they're using these private companies to achieve the ends that they want to which is to censor speech, so there is a. There uh, can be arguments and there have been arguments successfully made in the Supreme Court over, especially the last century that when the government wants something to happen and it pressures a private company under the threat. Of some sort of government imposition to do those things that is considered by the United States Supreme Court to be an action of the government itself so. You could have a meaningful First Amendment case bring itself up through the court system on that basis. On the, the other side, the conservatives, what conservatives, um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll save my argument about what conservatives are debating and let you respond to that because I know you have an answer. To yeah.
1: Well, first, let's take a quick break okay. um, and then we'll come back and, and, and I'll respond. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten an opportunity to read uh, uh, Vivek r- r- Ramaswamy's article. Ra- mm. Ramaswamy, yeah. Ramaswamy. I apologize. Um, I haven't gotten an opportunity to to read the article because the Wall Street Journal has a paywall. Screw all of you websites with paywalls. That should be illegal. <laughs> hey, government, if you're listening, you know, make the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all of them and the Washington yes. Post take down the paywall. <laughs> Seize
0: um, the means of news production. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Well, there's no paywall on the Daily Caller site. I don't believe. Um, oh, we got.
0: We do have a premium thing. We're trying to figure out a way to to stay in business.
1: <laughs> well, hopefully, people will subscribe to this, and that will uh, bring yes. in the kind of revenue that'll keep things uh, going. Amen. But um, the you know the principle, as you describe it makes sense and i and i you know i'm a firm believer you can challenge you can totally challenge the government and challenge this whole idea um my major point is not that i necessarily 100 um, percent agree with what the government is doing what i'm saying is i understand it in the interest of public health and i think that this is an existential crisis this is a this is something that um you know, extraordinary yes. these are extraordinary circumstances yes. where I think the government is acting in the interest of public safety and public health, not in its own interest. It's one thing when the government says, you know, don't speak out against the government. You know what I mean? That's what they do in China, that's what they do in Iran, that's what they do in, in North Korea. Um, or, you know, I, I think that there's there's other things and you know, it's a really, really difficult conversation, and maybe will muster up the courage to do it. But one of the things that I had an issue with, you know, um, I'm certainly, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I'm against or for any nation state, but I'll criticize them. Um, And I think you have the the right to criticize any nation state on the planet, especially your own. Mm -hmm. Um, And... You know, Chuck Schumer, on the other hand, was trying to make it illegal to criticize Israel. Um, And, you know, if you were a part of, you know, if you wanted to boycott Israel, which is, I think, part of your First Amendment rights, that is literally part of your First Amendment rights um, and your right to free speech. Um, They tried to make it through compulsion uh, illegal to criticize Israel. And I thought that was a government overreach, you know, um, and it's, it says nothing in my opinion about how I feel about Israel one way or the other. I just think to say that you can't criticize this, right. You can't boycott it, or we will come after you as the U S government. I think that that, I was shocked at how few people we're willing to speak up and say, "Look, even people who support Israel wholeheartedly." And I have some friends who are like, "Yo," who have family in Israel, who are like, "That's an overreach. That's dangerous." You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing is, I think this is a little bit different because of the circumstances. As I've said a hundred times, you know, we literally over the last eighteen months have lost the equivalent of the population of the city of Baltimore or the city of Boston, twice the, twice the population of Miami. Like we are talking about an enormous group size of, yep. of Americans that yep. have been lost. And I yes, agree. some of them were older. I agree. Uh, but many of them would have lived another 10 years, another 15 years. That's 10 years worth of hugs with their grandchildren. Yep. You know, that's 10 years worth of going to graduations and, and going to weddings that they lost because of this pandemic and the government has to use everything. I hope one of my hopes for the government in terms of national security is that the government is going to keep me safe. That's one of the things Donald Trump said. Yes. I agree with it. You know, not about, not about COVID, but we need to keep our, our, Country safe. You talk okay, about so it in terms of border security and other things. Obama said it. We need to keep our country safe. That's yes. the role of government.
0: And that's and always that's always the moment when our liberties are most imperiled, though. So what happened after 9-11, right? So the 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 threat to our country, terrorism, the United States rallies together. We need to come up with answers. We need to prevent this with happening from happening again. And all of a sudden, with very little debate, we passed the Patriot Act.
1: Yeah, and no, the Patriot
0: right. Act served as a, a real infringement on civil liberties and has served as that uh, of American citizens. It, it didn't, its tools were turned against us. So my argument is, I agree with you. We have an urgent public health crisis. But in the midst of this, uh, I want to look back 10 years from now and say that I, was, that I have my eyes open about the threats to our liberties as well. Because a public health crisis is a perfect time for the government to flex its opportunity to go after civil liberties, because by and large people will uh, sort of accept it in the interest of public health. But the end result is that I think we do engage in a very meaningful slippery slope that we will feel for decades to come uh, if we give too much. So when I was talking before about like the division among conservatives on how to deal with these companies, you know, I, I, I really respect and I have respected for a long time the libertarian arguments. But at some point, you have to confront reality. And here's reality. If you say build your own social media company, well, we've seen an example of that, right? Parler built its own social media company as an answer to Facebook and Twitter. Now you could debate the merits of having a place where mostly conservatives are going. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in a much more open conversation. I like having a place where both liberals and conservatives are having conversations even if they aren't entirely productive. But I like seeing what everybody's saying. That's my preference personally. But putting all that aside, when Parler was on the rise, in the wake of January 6th, there were a couple of companies who um, had who were basically blamed for the places the conversations were happening ahead of both the rally and then the incursion in the Capitol on the 6th of January. The place that caught all the blame was Parler, but in reality, most of the conversation was actually happening on Facebook. Now, who faced consequences in all of this? Well, that's of course the upstart company, Parler was banished from Apple's App Store. It was banished from the Google Play Store. Amazon Web Services took down the servers that that Parler was using to stay online. And Facebook faced no such consequences from any of the companies involved because Facebook is powerful, very powerful. Um, In addition, yes, one way to think about social media companies is I need a place where I can express myself and communicate with other people that I'd like to communicate with. That's true. It's a personal thing. But it's also a societal thing, right? Because if you have only a few companies that control all of human knowledge, Facebook, most interpersonal communication globally, Google, most human knowledge globally, more than 90% of all searches achieved on Google, then regardless of whether or not you personally use Google, maybe you use DuckDuckGo or Bing or some other search engine, Google has a distorting effect on what we know as a society because Google is to dictate what rises and what falls, what appears on its search index and what doesn't. And the end result is that that affects public policy debates, that affects people's lives, that affects our understanding of of reality itself. So at some point, we have to confront the scale of these monopolies, the impact of these monopolies, and whether or not they're curtailing human flourishing in the United States. I don't think that's an unreasonable debate for conservatives to have. I respect the libertarian side of things but I love this country and I don't want oligarchs distorting the country in such a way that they have more power over it than the voters do.
1: No. I, and, and, I understand, stand your concerns. And, and I think your, your argument about the Patriot Act was a really good one. Um, and it's, it's not one that I would disagree with. I, I do think, um, you know, that governments do take these opportunities to do this, I do, again, think even with being attacked, the United States has been attacked before. Um, We've seen acts of terror, Uh, maybe none uh, with the size of 9-11 and certainly not with the dramatic means and certainly not one that we watched live on television. You know, I, I think everybody remembers, you know, Excuse me. Um, The entire country remembers 9-11, you know, as it was happening. And I'll never forget, um, you know, you know that I'm originally from New York City. So, you know, I called, you know, my grandmother and the phones were dead. Like the line was dead. Couldn't get through. You know, I called a cousin who worked downtown and couldn't get through to him. Lines were dead in New York. Um, that was a terrifying moment. Um, but again, even with that, that was a, a moment versus a sustained thing that's been going on for 18 months and has the ability to come back again. Um, I do think that they are a little bit distinct. I understand you know, the concern that we will be attacked again. And I think that there are some things that our government did um, that maybe some people, libertarians would say as an overreach, I don't want to take my shoes off when I go through security. Right. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, be subject to be padded down, you especially know, especially because um, TSA
0: is incapable of actually finding any threats. Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen the the tests that they do with TSA? Yeah, they, yeah. they'll like so, stick knives and stuff inside of the inside of the X ray scanner, and like they all get through. Like everything gets through. Yeah. What is the point? I mean, it, it's it's all security theater. I know you yeah, didn't then, need to engage but in that. Listen, but listen, yeah. they'll yeah.
1: find that bottle of water. I'll tell you that. That's exactly now, listen, right. Now, shout out to TSA. I, I think TSA gets a a lot of backlash, and you know somebody sneaks a knife um, through. And, you know, I, I've seen it happen, but, you know, I, I don't know if, if we've seen, like, any research that says how many things that they catch and how many things that they, they don't. Um, I'm referring
0: um, to the TSA's own tests of themselves. Like, like they'll right. subject their guys to these tests where they run things right. through security and then they constantly get through. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. well, like, why am I standing in this line for half an hour for no reason if you're not going to catch <laughs> anything?
1: No, you know, I guess because I, I've known people who work for TSA. And, yeah, I get you know, it. They're hardworking. You know, people have to deal with your attitude because you know, because <laughs> you're running 15 minutes late for your flight. You know what I mean? And they have yeah. to put up with your BS, not you and you, know, you specifically, <laughs> but maybe I'm saying me. You know, they have to put up with my BS of rushing them and being upset and you know and whining and complaining. And they're like yeah. any other customer service job. Those are working class people who, you know, who do a service They're they're trying. Maybe the tools they have aren't good enough and they yeah. don't get paid well. And that's when you get the labor shortages. And that's when the lines get longer. <laughs> yeah, know? they're so just think, doing
0: their job. I just don't see right. enough evidence that that job should exist. That's all I'm saying.
1: Yeah, oh, I think it should exist. It should be more effective. But I I, I get my point is, I, I understand why you want to put those things in place. Yeah. You know, a guy tried to light his underwear on fire and his shoes and whatever. I'm so, you, you know, you're trying to, you know, protect people, make sure that they're not sneaking something in their shoe or whatever. So I get that. Um, but other things I think were in overreach and didn't make a whole lot of sense. And, you know, the Patriot Act and all of the the ways that it infringed upon American civil liberties was really troubling. And, you know, you just can't say 9-11, 9 9/11, 9-11. We were all affected by that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. look, like I said, I'm from New York City, had people working downtown, family members, friends. And I'm you know, I was in D.C., <laughs> you know, like yeah. a couple of miles from the Pentagon when it mm-hmm. happened. Um. So it was just like the world, you know. It felt literally like, like I was in Independence Day. And you know so the I impact
0: like, was. And the impact was, you were probably willing to do literally anything to make sure that nothing like that could happen again. At that moment,
1: for you sure, are,
0: you, yeah, like so vulnerable. many Americans, are kind of fit to be taken advantage of.
1: Right, but this isn't. Again, I think what we're seeing now, and, and again, I understand your argument for a slippery slope. But what we're seeing now, where they're not going after individual Americans, they're saying, hey, big, giant corporation, you know, rein your stuff in. And again, the thing with Parler, the comparison between Parler and, you know, Facebook. Facebook, for example, when I get hate mail, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, people saying they want to kill me or kill my family or talk about, you know, use racial epithets, I post it on Facebook. I expose the person, you know, because I got a bunch of internet sleuth friends (laughs) who go and find out who the person is. Um, So again, or I get a phone call or something like that. I put it on Facebook. But Facebook, a lot of times, takes the emails down. Even though I'm the victim, you know, victim. But I'm the, you know, the person being threatened and I'm just exposing it. Because it has certain language in it, You know, all it takes is for somebody, probably the person who sent the email, (laughs) to look it up and then report it and it gets taken down. The thing that I think people were worried about with Parler is that threats of violence and all that were allowed to stay up. There was literally no, you know, not like I hate President uh, Biden, you know, that you can hate President Biden, but You could say, hey, maybe we should bomb, you know, the Capitol, you know, or or inciting and and riling people up for violence. And it was allowed to sit there because they were the free speech app. And that was what was concerning. And that's why Google said, look, do what you want. Create your own computer infrastructure. You're just not going to be on our platform. And I think that private companies have some rights as to who they can include. There are people, you know, somebody out there saying, I want to be interviewed on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. And I'm going to be like, no, you're a clown. No, I'm, I, we don't want to interview you. And they don't have the right to our platform. This is right. our platform.
0: But if you and I, if this show grew so immense that we controlled the majority of human knowledge, uh, then at some point, it might actually be worth saying, okay, maybe there is a right to, for that guy to be, to be put on the show. Maybe a conflicting opinion should get into that airtight space. Uh, now, I hope that's a problem we have to deal with someday in the future. Yeah, yeah, um, right. But, but uh, <laughs> I just think that the size and the scale and the power of these companies, which um, outpaces that of most governments across the planet, um, is worth considering. And it's worth thinking about, okay, whether or not it works to the advantage of, um, the average American. And, and I mean that for people of both political parties, I just, this, all of this, uh, to me, uh, is a nerve wracking overreach. And, um, and that's why I wanted to talk about it with you today, because I just think that, uh, there's gotta be some places. And I think you and I have found a couple of them where, um, the left and the right can, can agree and say, okay, look, if we want to, uh, preserve the robust debate that you and I are having then we need to make sure that we keep um referees out of it and uh and and allow us to to rest solidly on the first amendment which uh protects our god-given right to do this
1: no i i, I agree but um i think referees in a fight are good you know um i think there are times where you need somebody to keep things safe you know you and i have uh spirited good conversations we find places of agreement we find places where we disagree um but there are other times where people resort to threats um and resort to you know uh all kinds of things that are dangerous and I also think if you have a big audience you have a big responsibility or if you have a platform Mm -hmm. you have you have a responsibility um yeah and you know, just like uh, I know, I keep using the the restaurant analogy. But if we owned a restaurant, you know, some food distributor can't come in and say, "Hey, use my chickens." I could be like, "No, nah, I don't have to distribute distribute your chickens or or your lettuce or anything like that." I'm going to distribute this one. You can mm-hmm. start your own restaurant. I can't stop you. Uh, I think Parlor and Getter and all of them. I think that's a good idea as long as. You know, there are certain levels uh, of respect in terms of gauging what what's hate speech and all that. That's, you know, that's. It's subjective. Yeah. It's subjective. I think there are there are things, though, where if you're talking about direct threats um, to individuals or institutions, I think that should be, you know, flagged or, or policed. Um, we've seen Twitter. They don't do a whole lot, but they say, look you know, if you're going to post something, I know one time somebody, this is one of the few times where somebody got me angry enough where I started cursing. <laughs> you know? I always think it's stupid to, to type out a curse word. I think <laughs> it's dumb. But uh, like you mother, you know, but this person, uh, this one person I was uh-huh. like, yo, you know, and usually I just, I, like, I call myself the Twitter Dikembe Matumbo. Because I just uh-huh. block people. I, don't, no, I know. No, Is no. that
0: in your, I was wondering about that the other day. Is that in your Twitter bio? It should be. Yeah,
1: I'm going to. I'm like, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I I usually just block people, but this person really got under my skin. And so I was like, you know, responding and Twitter, you know, before I I press send and Twitter was like, you sure you want to send this? And I was like, you know, I don't. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. Twitter does a lot of things like, abusive, offensive speech. If I wanna see it, I can still see it, but it just mm-hmm. gives me a warning. Um, I think that there are ways, my point in bringing that up and not to praise Twitter, but uh, I think there are ways in which we can, or a social media and these tech giant companies can uh, do certain things that would be in the interest of public health, a warning. You know, this has not been substantiated by blah, 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 blah. You know, I guess, I mean, my problem is I just don't,
0: I guess my problem is I just don't trust them to be the, uh, to be the end all be all, you know, like, I, I I think you're right. Like, like a fair fight requires a referee, but what I'm seeing is a lot of like East German ice skating judges. You know, it's like it's like it's like eh, I don't think I don't think you really have uh, the interest of free and open civil discourse in mind here. Uh, I think you've made up your mind already about how you want this to go. Uh, but so, don't you uh, think, like, god, okay, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's just, you know, I like how many legitimate scientists have to be censored before we say, OK, maybe this is a little overzealous.
1: Yeah, I think um, when something hasn't been sub- substantiated, I think if they can point to actual, you know, peer reviewed research. Um, that says certain things Um, and we've seen poor research literally craft a narrative. One of the things that I teach about um, in my classes is about the narrative around a so-called crack baby. Mm -hmm. You remember when we used to say certain people were crack babies? And what we learned is that is a false construction and it's based on a research or not even research observation of twenty-two mm. babies born to crack-addicted mothers, you know, and a lot of those uh, the things. So, in that other words, sold, in other
0: words, the sample was really small. Is that what you're saying?
1: Really small. Twenty. You can't make a determination. And literally, they created this whole fiction, which was used really to demonize um, poor young black children a generation of poor young black children, urban children. It was so like what was, what was the definition? Baby. What was the definition
0: of crack baby? Crack baby was basically a child who had long lasting impacts because of maternal use of crack cocaine.
1: Right. Um,
0: and so, so you're saying that, that that's untrue. There is no long lasting impact.
1: So uh, what, what was found um, was that a lot of what happened, I mean, I, I let me be clear. Don't smoke crack while you're pregnant. How about that? Don't Seems smoke like good a advice. cigarette while you're pregnant. Don't now, smoke- Jason's, not,
0: Jason's not a doctor. I should point that out. I just want yeah, to be real I actually fair. am
1: a doctor. I'm just not a medical doctor. <laughs> oh,
0: I'm sorry. Not, not an MD. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for I that. I am a
1: PhD. <laughs> um, but um, what, what we've seen <laughs> is that a lot of the, the things that, that were observed yeah. actually were consistent with poor prenatal care or no prenatal care. And a lot of that can be attributed to poverty in and of itself um, and lack of healthcare and lack of resources. Um, And it's not necessarily um, the crack cocaine. But again, my point in saying this is when you don't have, when people start jumping on things, and this is why when you bring up the media versus like a study from NYU, That's why I don't think that's a one-to-one comparison because the media jumped all over that, the crack baby thing, and yeah. they're like, "Oh, look, this guy—he has glasses and a lab coat. He said it." You know, yes. and even that guy has come back and he has basically apologized and said, "This is this is my mistake." This also, my let
0: also let me stipulate—I didn't do it before—but I, I don't reflexively trust a lot of academic studies. I just want to be really clear about that because. You can read any academic study, and I'm sure you've encountered many of these where you're like, "What's the methodology that that, that was involved here? Sure. How did they reach this conclusion? Who funded the study? Uh, I mean, there are a million reasons why you should even approach any academic study with skepticism. My only point is just that like that that what we have here is really powerful companies uh, at the behest or even under under threat from the government. Who are exerting broad controls on uh, important speech and conversation within the United States, and so we should push back. We should we should make we should widen the lens just as much as we possibly can for productive conversation.
1: Right, and I, and you know we push back on one another all the time, um, and you know I love it, I enjoy it, I hope the audience enjoys it. You know, hopefully this show will grow, uh, and Google won't suppress us. Uh, I just want to say thank you, Vince, once again. For all of you out there, hope you enjoyed this conversation. Hope you're having conversations amongst one another. Hopefully you're willing to talk to your neighbors in, in the kind of, with the kind of uh, respectful civil discourse that we have here, like, subscribe, help us get up in that algorithm. Please. Uh, watch us on YouTube, Facebook, watch. And um, are we on the Daily Caller website? Hell yeah. Uh, the Daily Caller website. Go visit that. And also... Uh, Anywhere podcasts are found, check out Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Hopefully, we're going to have some surprises for you very soon. We're really excited about the future of this show. Uh, So stay tuned this week and every week after that. Thank you, Vince. Peace out. Thanks, Jason.